America, where money grows on trees, and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was the first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. And even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were masked ring doorbells and said, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assumed 
just because we were in love. We would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. As an only son raising a traditional family, I, was, uh, I thought loyalty to my parents was the most important. Therefore, I never emotionally left my parents and cleaved to Angela. I tried to please both sides, but end up pleased no one. Angela fell in love because I was not fully devoted to her. My father was well-liked, but very passive at home, so I never learned how to be a loving husband. And without Jesus Christ, I didn't have the biblical principles of how to love sacrificially. Things progressively get worse and worse after years of unresolved issues. Our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork uh, for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. I never imagined that I would get a divorce. Since I was a little girl, I dream of belonging to a loving and caring family. While dating in college, Leon treated me like a princess. But my parents disapproved of our dating, and I refused to end our relationship. So my mom slapped my face for the first time in my life. However, I still consider our love to be true and everlasting. As soon as I finished college, I came to the U.S. for graduate school, but I decided to give up my full scholarship for, to get married instead. I also found a full-time job so my husband can get his, concentrate on getting his PhD. My parents were furious. Leon and I faced tremendous pressure and expectations from our parents on both sides. Especially, Leon was the only son. I felt as if he had become a totally different person. I cried through many sleepless nights. For years, I endured this for the sake of our two young sons. Leon was laid off from his first job and went back to school again. So I worked the night shift, providing the only source of income until Leon completed both his PhD and doctorate in dentistry. We devoted our energy to build a dental clinic on the outside, we had it all. A new house in a comfortable suburb of Chicago. Two luxury cars. A husband with two doctors and both son in dental school. But I was depressed, miserable, lonely, and felt like a total failure. So my dream of belonging to a loving and caring family became more and more distant as the years went by. So finally, we began the paperwork for a divorce. I didn't think things would get any worse, but I was wrong. In the same year, on May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year from the University of Louisville School of Dentistry. He made an announcement. I am gay. 
since our marriage relationship was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her for making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But Angela's response quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with an ultimatum to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. I fell to the floor in shock and anguish, and my body was numb and as cold as ice. Without any relatives or a church family, I had no one to turn to. In desperation, I went to the phone book and radio, hoping to find help, but there was none. In my mind, not only had my husband refused to stand by me, but also Christopher, who was closest to me and my last ray of hope, had also betrayed me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I left home, not telling Leon where I was going or what I was doing. I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train to Louisville, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train I began to read the pamphlet which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. I then looked out the window and marveled at the beauty of nature. The fields extend in every direction and seem to have no end. I have been an atheist all my life, but for the very first time, I noticed the wonder of creation, and I knew that there must be a God. One of my favorite verses today is Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, 
so that men are without excuse. Even though everything around me proclaimed the work of his hands, I had suppressed the truth of God for 51 years. I was without excuse. There is a God. I cannot remember if anyone else was with me on the train, but it seemed as if I was there all alone. I lost sense of time as I sat there in perfect peace. Then I heard a still, small voice. You belong to me. All my life, I longed to belong to somebody. First, my parents. Then, my husband. Finally, my children. But God, who knew my deepest need, told me that I belong to him. So those four words from God were like a healing palm to my shattered heart. Although I was not seeking God, I was found by my loving creator. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number on the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. I had never heard of a Bible bookstore. So when I was brought to one, I was like a little kid in a candy store. Along with the Bible, along with the Bible I read Christian book after Christian book, from morning to night. I rent an extended stay apartment. In my time in Louisville, was like a private retreat. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. Another one of my favorite verses is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. She was very excited, told me, that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. And I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. <laughs> but what I observed was that her transfer transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every day of the week. She spent hours each morning in her prayer closet, reading her Bible, interceding for Christopher, and, and her faith was vibrant and alive. And it impacted every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I started going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called a BSF, Bible Study Fellowship we began to grow deeper in our understanding of and love for God and his word. It was while studying the Bible that I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. He removed the blinders 
from my eyes, so I also surrender my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue that kept our marriage together by drawing both of us over himself and as one flesh. This was God's way for preparing both of us for the difficult times ahead. As Christopher headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. From my childhood years, I did what most Chinese American kids did. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> See, I never fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, I had different interests. And God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these feelings was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house, at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. Unfortunately, Pornography has become the master of many youth and adults, men and women. Many of us do not know how easily accessible it is on the internet and do little or nothing to protect ourselves and our families from it. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? There's a few other industries that are multi-billion dollar industries. Take the major television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Their combined annual revenue is $6.2 billion. The combined annual revenue of the major league sports, baseball, basketball, football, hockey, is $12 billion. But if we were to add up the annual revenue of these two industries, they would pale in comparison to the annual revenue of the pornography industry. $57 billion. We are in an all-out war with the pornography industry, and to be honest, we're losing miserably. Even scarier, statistics say 9 out of 10 children aged 8 to 16 have already viewed pornography on the internet, often by accident when simply doing their homework. Even worse, <clears throat> one out of five children aged 10 to 17 have received a solicitation over the internet by a sexual predator. And often, they didn't think anything was wrong. So what can be done? Well, my parents and I, we advocate having double internet protection. That's having an internet filter and an accountability program. Internet filters blocks questionable sites from being viewed, but as we know, there's no perfect software. So sometimes sites might still get through. Having an accountability program is good. Accountability program logs which sites are viewed or which sites might get through. Two programs my parents and I uh, have on our computers. One is called k9webprotection.com. The other one is x3watch.com. You can get out your pen and paper. You can write this down, k9webprotection. Uh, dot com, that is a free internet filter. The other one is x3watch.com. Uh, you can find uh, a filter on there that you pay for, but if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, you can actually download a free accountability program. There are some other ones that you've probably heard of that are very good that you pay for. SafeEyes.com, CovenantEyes.com, NetNanny.com. Those are just some examples of some good ones. Um, I, I think that all of us, if you have children, Put this on your children's computer. If you have grandchildren, make sure that you jot this down and make sure you, that your children put it on your grandchildren's computer. 
if you have no children, still put it on your computer, because remember, if garbage comes in, garbage is going to come out. And I challenge you men, put this on your computer and have your wife or your accountability partner hold the password. We also, we have to talk openly and frankly with our youth and young adults about sex and sexuality. In evangelical circles, sometimes we're so, we don't want to expose our children, but then at the expense of not talking about sex and sexuality at all, and so their only input of sex and sexuality is from television, from public schools, or from MTV, and, and you know, sometimes we're really concerned about sex education in school. Actually, that's not really the big concern anymore. You know what's sex education for kids today? Google. They can get online, they can find anything. Find a definition, find stories, find pictures, videos. So let us be proactive. Wouldn't it be awesome if our kids first heard about sex and sexuality at home and not in the playground and not, not in uh, you know, the locker room, but at home? And also, sex education is not the responsibility of the youth pastor. It's not even the responsibility of the pastor. It's the responsibility, the main responsibility of the parent. Don't parents, do not let other people to take that responsi responsibility away. Unfortunately for me, with pornography fueling my same-sex attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old. But I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. And then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, I finally came out of the closet. In my, I, I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily. But I still, uh, still left that void, and so I began experimenting with drugs. Of course, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous. Unfortunately, that's part of my story, but honestly, it just shows the power of God over any issue. So God... Uh, you know, was, was not in the picture, and I just began experimenting with drugs. I was a dental student, though, so I did not have much money. So what did I do? I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, and even a professor. I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But... Three months before I was to graduate with my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew down from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad, he's a dentist, he actually knew the dean really well, and all they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I'd stay in school for another three months, get my doctorate. And isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? Well, to my surprise, as we sat in the dean's office, my lo mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. Well, can I just tell you, I was not happy about that decision. <laughs> They were not on my side, they were on their side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states, in addition 
It was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Liane and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, mom. But little did I know, he never read them and simply tossed them into the garbage. I called him frequently, but I always got his voicemail. He, I would leave messages, and he would never call me back. Once he even threatened that if I ever brought up God, we would never see him again. Leon and I thought Christopher might come home for the holidays if we bought him a plane ticket. So on Christmas Eve, we went, I went to O'Hare Airport to pick him up. It was before 9-11 when we could still go to the gate to meet our guests. I stood there peering down the jail bridge in anticipation for Christopher. As the arriving passengers came into view, my heart lived with excitement, but then dropped in disappointment when I realized that it was not Christopher. One by one, I watched the travelers reunited into the arms of their loved ones where I stood there all alone. When the last person came off the plane, then I knew Christopher was not on the flight. So I drove back home and came back several hours later for the next flight, but only to repeat what had happened hours before. Our son, Christopher, was not returning. In tears, I drove back home alone. Since Christopher would not come to us, we went to him. Angel and I would flew to Atlanta. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I want to leave with him something I precious. That was my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left on his counter anyway and walked out the door. I found out later that as soon as we left the door, he took my Bible and threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. And uh, we knew that it's going to take a God-sized miracle to turn things around. So my wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. As hopeless as things were, we committed not to focus on the hopelessness, 
but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our own church and from the Bible study fellowship group, we cry out to God for Christopher. In addition, Angela fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for Christopher. Literally, she would literally spend every morning on her knees, in her prayer closet, reading her Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself and for me. She wrote down many of her prayers. Following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. As I look back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. That's what Chambers said. We are not here to prove God answers prayer, but we are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. My parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 Federal Drug Enforcement Agents, Atlanta Police, and two big German Shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. 
I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling all my friends, you know, friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that really get me more into trouble than they're any good for me. Well, what I didn't realize was I had praying mother at home. And she knew as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers where she prayed specifically that somehow, someway, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I didn't want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. Well, my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger. It's not God's wrath. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. She knew, without a doubt, that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she realized she had to do just as that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and she reached out next to the phone was an adding machine calculator and she tore off a little piece of the tape just a little piece and she wrote down these first blessings Christopher is in a safe place compared to before and he called home for the very first time as my years in prison passed she kept adding to this list of blessings and taping more pieces of Adam machine tape to it and counting her blessings and today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block, and I passed by this garbage can. And I looked at this trash, full, this trash can full of garbage, and I thought to myself, my life, my life is so much like this trash. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself 
among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. But something I got top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book for the first time. I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me just tell you, I was not thinking this was the answer to all my problems. Honestly, I thought, I've got a lot of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles isn't just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, beloved, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it was not a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office, so they handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. They shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She sat me down, shut the door behind me. I knew something was not right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence. The verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumbled up the steps. My legs lost their strength. With one arm against the wall, I dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my head. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. 
it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea few days after receiving that devastating news, I was lying in my bed, all alone, in my cell. Then I looked up at the metal bunk above me. There's graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something, scribbled something, and it caught my attention, and it read, if you're bored. Read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless, regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough strength, enough faith, to get through that one day, and the next, and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you I said a prayer after that, got down on my knees, and everything was just perfect. I had no problems after that. That's far from the truth. God was really beginning to convict me of the idols in my life. The most obvious was drugs. That's what I was in prison for. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. But the last thing that I was still holding on to was my sexuality. I was reading the Bible. It was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. And I also came across some passages in the Bible that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexual identity. 
So I went to a prison chaplain. I thought, I don't know that much about the Bible. I better ask someone who should know more about the Bible. So I went to a prison chaplain, and I asked him his opinion on this issue of homosexuality. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. He went to a shelf, gave me a book. He said, here, this book explains that view. So with much, much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me just tell you from a purely human perspective, human perspective, I had every reason, every reason in the world to accept what that book was claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against homosexual sex. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture. I went cover to cover to cover to cover several times. I had time. <laughs> I was looking. I was desperately looking for justification. I wanted to find anything, anything to bless a monogamous, adult, consensual, gay relationship. Anything. I went I scoured, I, I went through the Bible looking and looking. I found nothing. So that meant I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous gay relationship by allowing my desire for a relationship to not only dictate who I was, but control how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous gay relationship by liberating myself from my feelings and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. As the days and the months and the weeks of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I was. See, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, right? That's biblical truth. But then I added, so therefore, he doesn't want me to change. But now after reading the Bible, after reading the Bible, which is a good thing, after reading the Bible, I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say that again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity should never be defined only by my sexuality. My identity, it should never be grounded in my desire even for a relationship. My identity is not gay, homosexual, or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God, must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, honestly, I thought before that, to please this God of the Bible, I had to become straight. 
But even people who have heterosexual feelings still struggle with sin. So I realized that the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. God never said, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. But rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of anything is holiness. So God was telling me, do not focus upon what you feel. Don't focus upon your temptations or your desires, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change, it's not the absence of struggles. Does God ever promise us, come to Jesus and you won't ever have any temptations? You won't have any problems? No. Change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Because the ultimate issue is not my struggles. The ultimate issues is not, are not my temptations or my desires. But the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God right. in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and this life of obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life will remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, told them about my interest to go to Bible college, uh, go into ministry. Then I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college that, had, that I had ever heard of in our hometown in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it. I tore it open. I began filling out the, answer, you know, the questions, writing my essays, till I got to the end where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. The only people I knew were people in prison. So I had some slim pickings. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So the greatest miracle of this whole story is that Moody actually accepted me. <laughs> I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, just this year where I received my Doctorate of Ministry from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And I also had the honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We were really intentional about writing it both from our own first-person narratives. She wrote chapter one. 
I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter three, she wrote cha uh, she, uh, she wrote cha I wrote chapter four. So they're alternating narratives, interwoven uh, uh, stories. So really, we, we wanted to show how you can have the same situation from two totally different perspectives. And then God in his mercy and his grace bring us all back together. And now our book is actually even being used in Christian high schools as a textbook to communicate biblical sexuality through our narrative. I mean, that's how kids communicate or connect now. So they're using that now, and God has so blessed my parents and I, given us years that the locusts have taken away, where we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then as if that wasn't enough, that, that would be enough. Thank you, God. But God has such a sense of humor because now he has brought me back full circle to Moody, where I'm teaching now in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God, amen. But God, but God has done far, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. So as uh, Karis, maybe if you come up and as we conclude, you know, the reality, the reality of our story, you know, looks so much like upon this one prodigal, and it was. But as we step back, we realize that actually, our narrative is really about a family of prodigals. We all, all of us, were, maybe still are, prodigals. Many of us have prodigals in our lives. A prodigal daughter, a prodigal mother, a prodigal nephew, prodigal neighbor. And as hopeless as things might seem, as much as you are on the brink of hopelessness, can I just bring a word? We serve a God of hope that in the most hopeless of situations, there is hope in him. Christmas is coming, and in the midst of our holiday season, many of you will be seeing family, will be seeing your prodigals. And I just hope and pray that in those situations that we won't give up on hope, that we won't give up on the God of the universe, who does the impossible, who invaded into time and broke through into each of our lives to shine the light of truth into our spirit. So as you reflect upon that loved one, just know that as much as you love that one, there's someone else loves that one immensely more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, the author of life. 
God, many of us have prodigals that are so wayward, that are so hopeless. I guess not so much like we were hopeless. Give us, Lord God, just an extra portion of your grace tonight to persevere. Help us, Lord God, to be on our knees, on our faces, crying out, interceding when no one else is interceding in their place. Help us, Lord God, to stand in the gap. Lord, might we be as persevering as that widow was. Lord, we know that it's not possible for people to turn around. But in you, everything is possible. So this Christmas season, God, as we reflect on Advent and the coming of your son, Jesus, Lord, help us to remember that he came not just for me, but he also came to save and seek the lost. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah, the light of the world. We pray that in his name. The people of God said, amen.